Does anybody here know what a triptych is? A triptych travel planner. Anybody know? Apparently not. Hmm? Yeah, like b before everybody had uh, GPS on their phones and in their cars, there were these crazy things that people used to get from place to place called maps. And if you've ever uh, been on a vacation or in a car ride somewhere where, where you're trying to use a map to get to where you're going, you know that the prospect of unfolding a map in the car and then refolding it in the car, uh, that there's a significant chance that when that happens, the car is going to wreck and go off the road. And so it's probably not a coincidence that AAA, also a car insurance company, came up with these things called triptychs. And what these were, I mean, I would assume they don't make them anymore, but they may still, is that you could go to a AAA office and say, I'm going on vacation to this place. I live here. This is where I'm going. These are all the places I want to stop along the way and all, and all these important things that I want to do. And what they would do is they would take that information and then print out these series of little one-page maps and then bind them together. So you would get this booklet about the size of a folded map that you could just flip through as you went on your trip. And when you came to a city, there'd be this fold-out portion which would give you uh, kind of an exploded, uh, zoomed-in view of the city so you would know where you needed to go to, to get around or get through the city. The AAA people would mark construction and do all kinds of other really helpful stuff. And throughout the whole trip, there would be this highlighted line that if, if you didn't want to get lost, if you, just, if you just stayed on that line, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Remember many trips sitting in the, the front seat of the car, flipping through this little booklet as my dad drove us places. So very helpful tool, a lot like a GPS, but a GPS is probably more useful because then if you do get lost, it tells you how to get found again we could really use one of these tools tonight. Tonight, we're, we're in a text which is complicated enough on its own. But then, you add in the fact that it uh, concerns this, this widespread, hotly debated issue of divorce and remarriage. So it's a hard enough text, you add that on, and then you add on the fact that most of us have been personally affected by divorce. Most of us have know somebody who's been personally affected by divorce. So it's not just a hard text. It's not just a hard issue. It's an emotionally charged issue that affects us personally. And so it would be helpful if there was this clear-cut path for us to follow as we seek to navigate these texts and navigate these issues. And there's not one. Our text tonight is Matthew 5, 31 and 32, where, where Jesus talks to us about divorce and remarriage. And uh, as we go through this, as we seek to understand Jesus' words to us about marriage and about divorce and about remarriage in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to talk about passages in Genesis, in Deuteronomy, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. And we might be. 
We're going to take quick looks at these passages, but I'm probably also going to use some of my rollover minutes tonight. All those weeks where you thought, that was a short sermon. Tonight I'm going to cash those in. So as we go through this text, you know, be, just, just realize that the reason why we're spending the time here we're spending is because these issues are so important. And I'd also just ask you to, to realize that uh, this isn't a real exciting topic to talk about. And so I hope that, that the importance of this issue will be enough to keep your focus on it as we go through these texts. Before we get started, before we read the verses in Matthew, I want to give you a quick summary of the, the landscape of this debate on divorce and remarriage in the Bible. So we have this slide up here, which shows that the four, what I would call the four biblical views on divorce and remarriage. There are uh, other views, which I would say are non-biblical, but if you want to learn about those, you're going to have to talk to somebody else. So this first view on the left, it's pretty simple. No divorce, no remarriage. There aren't any biblical grounds for divorce, and if a divorce happens, the Bible prohibits remarriage. Second view is that there's no divorce in the Bible except in the case of adultery or abandonment. And when those happen, even when those happen, those those biblical divorces, remarriage is still prohibited. The third view, this is the majority view, there's no divorce except for the case of adultery and abandonment, And when those two things happen, then remarriage is allowed according to the Bible. And the fourth view is no divorce except for adultery and abandonment, but yes to remarriage, just an unqualified yes, meaning that if if people got divorced in the past, even if it wasn't one of these two that are accepted according to the Bible, you can still get remarried. So the majority view is this third one. Lots of smart guys like D.A. Carson, Craig Blomberg, John Stott, John MacArthur, John Murray, probably a few other guys named John, and, and lots of smart guys hold this view. Tonight, I'm going to disagree with all of them. Just to give you a little hint of where we're going, and I'll explain why along the way. So let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, there, there's some at the end of the rows. And you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 810. We're going to be reading Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. These are Jesus' words to us. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The main point of of our discussion tonight, of this message, as we go through this debate. The main point, and this thing that we need to have in the forefront of our minds as we go through all these passages, is that God's design for marriage is more important than our understanding of it. So we look at all these passages, that's what we want to be thinking about. We want to be thinking about the fact that his design, the way he intended it to be, is more important than anything that we think about it. With that being said, let's look at verse 31. He begins it just like he began the last two passages we saw, the passage on anger and the passage on lust. He begins it by saying something like, this is what's been said. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
So again, he quotes a passage of the Old Testament. The last two weeks, he's quoted one of the Ten Commandments. Tonight, he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy. This is from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. So we need to go back there, and we need to look at this passage if we want to understand what it is that Jesus is saying. This, this passage in Deuteronomy is kind of fueling this debate that Jesus is talking about in his day. But before we go to Deuteronomy 24, we need to go back a little bit further to Genesis 2:24. This is the, the first passage that kind of kicks off marriage in the Bible. Jesus is going to quote this passage, Genesis 2.24, later in Matthew. And so he obviously thinks it's important for the marriage debate, and so we need to read it as well. I'm going to read Genesis 2, verse 24. Moses writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you've probably heard this verse about as many times as you've been to weddings. Verses always read at a wedding. If it's not read at a wedding, then you know, there's something weird about that wedding. Um, so we know what happens at the beginning. In the beginning, God creates everything. He creates man and he, and he finds out that it's not good for man to be alone, he says. And so he creates woman to be a helper for them. And then they, they marry. They become one flesh. And this is what God is talking about in verse 24. He says they become one flesh. This is a, a one flesh, a unique relationship between a man and a woman. And it's enduring. It says that a man will hold fast. He holds fast to his wife. The same word is used. I mean, we've probably heard it talked about as cleave. It's also used in Job to talk about what happens to two dirt clods. If you think about two clumps of dirt, when it rains, they become wet. They turn into mud, and then they kind of meld together and then dry. And so there aren't two clumps of dirt anymore. There's one. This is the same word. And, and that's the kind of image that, that Genesis gives us of marriage, that these two people come together. God does something in them, and they become one flesh. It's as if they're just one person now instead of two. And as we move forward, th this is the understanding of marriage that informs everything else in Scripture. As we, as we walk through Deuteronomy, and we look at what Jesus says in the Gospels, and we look at what Paul says in his letters, we need to be thinking about the fact that this was God's original design for marriage. It's screwed up because of the fall, but, but this is what God said was good. So let's go ahead and go to Deuteronomy 24 now. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament. You just flip over a little bit to the right and you'll find it. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy 24. Moses here is, is giving the people these kind of stipulations and commands on how they're to act, how they're to behave, how they're to keep God's law once they get into the land. They're about to enter into the land, and Moses is kind of giving them some final regulations. This is what we find in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, 
who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away must not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So this is the thing where, where, where things really start to get hairy. It's really cut and dry back in Genesis. It's a, marriage is a good thing. It's a one-flesh, lifelong relationship. And then now, all of a sudden, things are going crazy. The first thing we need to realize about this text in Deuteronomy is that it's what we could call a descriptive text instead of a prescriptive text. This means that instead of prescribing something like you need to do this, it describes something that's happened. So Moses is describing this situation and then he's going to make a judgment based on it. And what he says is that there's some guy who's married to a woman, he finds some indecency in her and he sends her away. And he says once he's done that, he can't take her back. That's what Moses is saying. The problem for us is that Moses was really vague. Instead of saying this is exactly what some indecency means, he just kind of throws out that phrase. And, and that, these two little words, some indecency, are what spark the, the marriage debate that exists even in Jesus' day. It's what he's responding to. In, in Jesus' day, there were two competing schools. And I think we have a chart of this. There we go. Um, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. These, these are two rabbis who took a stance on this passage, and they were the predominant views of the Jews in Jesus' day. The school of Hillel thought that this phrase, some indecency, meant essentially anything. The, the rabbi even gave an example of a, of a woman spoiling a meal. So like, if your wife burns supper, that's an excuse to divorce her. Or if you find somebody better, that's some indecency, some deficiency in the woman. And so... Hillel would be the more liberal view. And if you have trouble keeping these straight, you can just think Hillel and Hillary, and you'll know which one the crazy liberal is. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, Shammai, on the other hand, is a more conservative view. So he says that it's some indecency, this phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, means uh, some type of sexual immorality on the part of the spouse. It's, it's immorality. Now, we need to remember here, as we get to the later discussion on adultery, that adultery wasn't grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when adultery happened, they just stoned the woman. And so this means something other than adultery. So it's, it's this entire backdrop. Genesis 2, Deuteronomy 24, the, these two schools of thought that are going through society. They're influencing the way people think about divorce and remarriage. This is all kind of packed in to that really small statement that Jesus makes in verse 31, that it was also said. He's saying all of this stuff has been said by people about divorce and remarriage. And in verse 32, he's going to tell us what he says. So let's look at Matthew 5, 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
So we're going to take this phrase, this statement by Jesus, in two pieces. We're going to focus first on, on what he's saying about divorce, and then later we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what he's saying about remarriage. And as I said before, uh, I mean, the question for us right here is, does Jesus allow for divorce in the case of sexual immorality, in the case of adultery? Does Jesus make an exception? And a majority of conservative, Bible-believing, smart Bible scholars say yes. I say no. I think no. And I'm going to explain why. To unpack this, we're going to turn to Matthew 19, which is where Jesus gives us the same information and also gives us a little more context. This is the context of Jesus' debate with, with the scribes, with the Jews. And so we're going to go there to see everything that he says on the topic. So turn with me to Matthew 19. We're going to read verses 3 through 12. Normally I'd probably wait until we got here to cover this, but it looks like it's going to be a while. So I want to cover this now so that we know the whole issue instead of one small part of it. So we're going to read Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So what happens is these Pharisees, these Jews, come to Jesus and they question him. Essentially what they're asking him is they're saying, is it, is it lawful? Is it permissible? Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, for any reason? They're basically saying, do you agree with the school of Hillel? Do you agree with this guy who says that Deuteronomy 24 means anything? How does Jesus respond? Jesus responds by quoting to them Genesis 2.24. He responds by, by taking them back to the beginning, by taking them back to God's intention for marriage from the very, very beginning. He says that the one flesh relationship that God makes shouldn't be broken by man. Verse 6, he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Jews respond. They say, Well, if that's true, then why did Moses command us to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses command us to do this if God said this? If you notice, Jesus points out a very similar thing to what I pointed out when we looked at Deuteronomy. He says, Moses didn't command you to. He allowed you to. He didn't say you had to do this. He made an exception because your hearts were hard. He's essentially saying because you were wicked, Moses allowed you to do this. And then in verse 9, Jesus gets back to this statement that he makes to us in Matthew 5. 
He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So this phrase, this small little phrase, the except for sexual immorality, four words, that's normally called the exception clause in Matthew. That's what everybody calls it, the exception clause. It's where most people, most scholars think that Jesus makes an exception for divorce in the case of adultery. The problem for us, as we, as we read the Bible, as we seek to understand the Bible, is that while Matthew has this, Mark and Luke don't. In Mark and Luke, we see Jesus making these absolute statements. I think we have a slide of, there we go. We see in Matthew 5.32 and 9.19, he includes the phrase, except for sexual immorality, or except on the ground of sexual immorality. But in Mark, it's just whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. In Luke, it's everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. There's no exception in Mark and Luke. And so when we come to passages like this, where it seems like three Gospels are in contradiction with each other, we have to ask, what's, what's going on? Why is this the case? Why does Matthew mention it if Mark and Luke don't? The people that hold the majority view that I talked about before, these people explain this. They say, well, Mark didn't include it, and Luke didn't include it because it was just so understood. It was a widespread understanding among the people because of this debate going on that there was an allowance for sexual immorality. Everybody thought that. Even, even the most conservative school thought that. So that's why Mark and Luke don't include it. But the problem with this is that those same scholars think that Mark and Luke were written to primarily Gentile audiences. The book of Luke, we know, is written to a guy named Theophilus. So clearly, not a Jewish person. So it if that's true, why would Mark and why would Luke assume that these guys who are Gentiles are going to be familiar with a debate that's Jewish? When I was in D.C., uh, I was having a conversation with an English guy about soccer. We're talking about soccer, and we were giving this other American trouble because he's a fan of Man United. He's a fan of Manchester United. Uh, and another American kind of walked up while we were giving him trouble and like, didn't really understand what was going on. And I explained to him, I said, well, they're, they're like the Yankees. And he immediately knew what I meant. But the English guy said, well, what does that mean? You see, because the American guy was familiar with baseball. He knew the culture of baseball. And so he knew what I meant by they're like the Yankees. But the English guy knew soccer. He didn't know baseball. So when I made that comparison, he was lost. I think that this, this is what, a way that we can kind of understand what I'm saying here is that Mark and Luke, their, their readers just wouldn't have had the categories that Jewish people had. And I doubt, I just, I just can't believe that, that two writers of Scripture would assume something so important. And so, I think there must be something else. The second reason why I don't, I don't think that's the case is... In Matthew, we saw in, verse, in, in chapter 19, verse 10, we saw how strongly the disciples reacted. It says, 
The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If Jesus is simply upholding what was the common understanding of the day, if he's just saying, I'm saying the same thing everybody else says, why would the disciples react this way? They're reacting as if Jesus is raising the standard. They're reacting as if, if he's making the standard so high that they don't think they can keep it. And so they say it's better not to marry. So, if I don't think they're right, how do I think we should explain? How do I think we should explain why Matthew has it and Mark and Luke don't? Well, as we've gone through Matthew up to this point, to where we are in chapter 5, even even in such a short amount of time, we've seen that Matthew includes some things other writers don't. And that Matthew leaves out some things that other writers include. And the reason why they do this is because they're not just writing just, just bare, bald history. They're not just simply saying, this is all the stuff that happened. Everything that happened, here's the dates, here's the people, here's what happened. They're writing what they're writing for a purpose. They're trying to communicate to us something about Jesus. They're trying to tell us what we should believe about who Jesus was, what he did, and what he said. And so that's why they... They leave things out sometimes. They give us other stuff that other writers don't. And when they do this, usually when an author does this, it's because he's trying to make to us some sort of theological point. He's saying, I'm including this thing. I'm choosing to take up space on the paper that I'm writing with this point because I think it's important. I think my readers need to know this, and so I'm going to put it in. And I think that this is exactly what Matthew is doing here. I think that Matthew includes this phrase, these two phrases in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, because he's making a point to us. I think he's, he's explaining something that we need to know. He's giving us information that we should know, and that's why he puts it in here. I think that what he's doing, I think the reason why it's in Matthew, why it's not in Mark or Luke, is because Matthew is explaining to us a situation that happens earlier in his gospel. He's explaining something that happens in the first few chapters of his gospel that doesn't happen in Mark or Luke, so they don't need to explain it. I think that what Jesus means when he uses this phrase, sexual immorality, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, I think he's talking about fornication. He's talking about premarital sexual immorality. Let me explain why. This word, this word that's translated sexual immorality is the word porneia. It's this kind of a generic Greek word to refer to sexual immorality. It also used to, to refer to more specific things. So if you think of a, a similar word in English like lust, we use lust to refer specifically to sexual desire. But we also use lust to talk about a lust for power. Just, just a strong desire that someone has. In the same way, this, this word in Greek can, can be both broad and really narrow. But I don't think, I don't agree with the people that it means adultery. I don't agree with the people that it means uh, vague sexual immorality, and this is why. Um, the first is that Matthew could have used the word adultery if he wanted to. He used it in the passage we talked about last week. He used the word for adultery. 
He also uses it in the passage we're talking about tonight. He uses it in multiple places in his gospel. So if he was talking about marital unfaithfulness, why not use that word? Because he obviously knows it. He obviously uses it. Why not use it here? We also see the word porneia used in Matthew 5, 19. I don't know if we have a slide of this. But it, uh, it's a, a list of vices. And uh, what Jesus says here is, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Okay, so here we see it. Right alongside adultery is sexual immorality. So in Matthew's mind, as, as he's using these words, he clearly thought they were different enough to include both of them in this list. He includes sexual immorality right alongside adultery. So as if they're distinct from each other. The reason why I think that it means fornication or premarital sexual immorality is twofold. The first is that the word, porneia, is actually used this way in the Bible. We have a passage from John 8. This is where Jesus is debating with the Jews. He's essentially saying in in the first part of the verse, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So essentially Jesus is saying, you're not acting like Abraham, so you're not his children they, as usual, completely miss his point. And they respond, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So essentially what they're saying is, they're saying we're not illegitimate children of Abraham. We weren't born out of premarital fornication. We were born as children of Abraham. In the story of, of Genesis, uh, Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar, the, the Greek translation of that story, if you remember the story, what happens is uh, Tamar marries one of Judah's sons who dies. Marries another one of Judah's sons who dies. She comes asking for the third son, and Judah says, I don't think I want any more of my kids to die. So he holds back the third son. Tamar tricks Judah into helping her conceive a child, and then people come to Judah and they say, Judah, you need to realize that your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She's pregnant. She's conceived a child outside of marriage. Genesis 38, 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. She's pregnant by porneia. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So, the word porneia is used to talk about what I'm talking about. But there's a more important reason why I think that this is how we should understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew, and that's this. It's explaining the actions of an earlier character in an earlier story. If you remember way back before Christmas, we talked about this awkward story in Matthew 1. We talked about this story where Joseph finds out that the person he's betrothed to and betrothal was, was a form of engagement. It's a lot like our engagement, only it was a whole lot more serious. The only way to break an engagement in the Jewish world was to give a certificate of divorce. They were even already called husband and wife, even though the marriage hadn't been consummated. And so Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, and he thinks 
It's not mine. So she must have been unfaithful to me. She must have broken our betrothal agreement. And Matthew says, in Matthew 1, he says that because, because Joseph was a just man, he sought to divorce her quietly. He thought to give her a certificate of divorce quietly because he thought that she had been unfaithful to him. And so I think that Matthew includes this phrase of Jesus in order to explain what's happening in Matthew 1. See, if it wasn't there, if Matthew just had those, those bare, absolute statements like Mark and Luke have, when we read Matthew, we would read those. And we would think, but wait a second, Matthew told me. He told me in chapter 1 that Joseph was just, that he was a good guy in the eyes of God, that he was doing the right thing. How is he doing the right thing if, if Jesus says he shouldn't do that? And just so you don't think I'm just this, this crazy person who has this really weird view on this passage, there are Bible scholars who hold this view. A guy named F.F. F. F. Bruce and a guy named John Piper. So I'm not on my own. I am a minority, but I'm not on my own. So what I'm saying, just to boil it down as basic as I can, is that I don't think in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, I don't think Jesus is making an exception for the case of adultery. I think he's saying that any divorce, in his eyes, is, is wrong. And I think that Jesus' high standard that he puts forth in this passage explains how the disciples react. The fact that this is what he's saying explains why they say, whoa, if that's true... If we can't do what the two rabbis say we can do, then it's better not to marry. Because I don't know if I can meet the standard that you're setting for me. And I think that this meshes more with what Paul says to us in Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. We don't see Jesus presenting the church with a certificate of divorce, saying you've sinned, you've gone after other things, so I'm done with you. The next question we have to address, and I've said I I don't think Jesus gives an exception for divorce. But what about Paul? Does Paul give an exception for divorce? To answer this question, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16. Here we read this. Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? So Paul begins by saying, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. 
What, what Paul's saying here, he's not saying that he's just making this up on the spot. That's why it's him, not the Lord. What he's saying is he's saying that Jesus didn't teach on this. Jesus didn't talk about this aspect of the divorce question. The reason why is because Jesus was never faced with this. He wasn't faced with mixed marriages between a Christian and a non-Christian that Paul's talking about. That didn't come up until after Jesus died on the cross. So he's saying that he's the one telling us this. It's his teaching. But, but don't think that that doesn't make it authoritative. You know, I think, I think sometimes as we, as we read the Bible, we look down and we see those little red words on the page, and we think that they're red because they're more important than all the other ones. But they're not. Paul's words, along with Jesus' words, are, are part of Scripture. They're inspired Scripture. And, and Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it's useful. All of it's authoritative. So Paul's teaching on divorce, Paul's teaching on remarriage is just as important. It carries just as much weight and just as much authority as Jesus' words do. And so does Paul give us an exception for divorce? I think he does. What he's saying here is that when a Christian is married to a non-Christian, if the non-Christian leaves, the non-Christian physically, physically abandons the marriage, the Christian is free. There's, there's nothing they can do to stop them from going. So if the, if the non-Christian leaves, they've been abandoned. This is usually called the exception for abandonment. And so just like in Paul's day, in, in our day, this is a reality. As of October last year, every single state in the U.S. and the District of Columbia and D.C., all of them have a no-fault divorce policy. What that means, if you you don't know what that means, that means that one party of the marriage can just decide without any evidence, without any significant reason, that they want a divorce. They want to end the marriage. And so they go to a judge, they find a lawyer, they do whatever, and they end the marriage, whether, whether the other person wants it to end or not. They can't stop them from leaving. This is what Paul's addressing. And so Paul, and I think rightly, I mean, he, he allows an exception in this case. You can't stop the non-Christian from leaving the marriage. So he says, let him go. And in reality, you know, I think that, that all the other exceptions we come up with, a lot of times when you talk about divorce and remarriage, people will say, well, what about this? You know, like, what about abuse? What about... Uh, when the husband is just lazy and, and doesn't earn any money and, and the family's broke and he's unwilling to do anything about it? What about adultery? What about neglect? What about all these other things? But I think that in reality, all of those things are going to be governed under abandonment. Think about it. The situation came up at BC where the elders found out that a woman or a man in our church was being abused. The first thing we would do is we would make sure that they had physical safety. We would remove them from the situation. But after that, we would counsel the couple. We would call them to repentance. We would call them to reconciliation. And one of two things would happen as a result of that. Either the the guilty party would repent and, and work towards reconciliation or they'd leave. They're not going to stay in a marriage if their spouse isn't there. And so I think that 
we, we shouldn't focus on all these things. We should focus on what, what the Bible actually says, the, the, the issues that the Bible actually deals with. And so quickly, we need to turn from talking about divorce to talk about remarriage. Is it okay to remarry in the, in the event of divorce, even though it's not supposed to happen, if it happens, is remarriage okay? First, let's look at Jesus on remarriage. In Matthew, he says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Twice. Uh, in Mark, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Uh, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And Luke, he says the same thing. And so Jesus is pretty black and white on the issue of divorce. There aren't very many other ways we could take these passages than if she divorces her husband, if she marries another, and he's still alive, she's committing adultery. It's wrong. That's what he's saying. What about Paul? Paul says a very similar thing. In Romans 7, we read this. He says, For a married woman is bound by, her, by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. This passage is usually left out of the divorce-remarriage debate. And that's because it's in the context of Paul talking about the law's relationship to, 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 to us as Christians. And what Paul does here is he uses marriage as an illustration to talk about our relationship to the law. He says that since we have Christians have died in Christ, since we've died in Christ, we're no longer bound to the law. And so Paul uses this illustration of marriage to illustrate that. And if he, he did allow for remarriage, if he did allow for divorce, that would weaken his argument quite a bit. His, his entire argument hinges on the fact that a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. She can't remarry. He says the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, saying, Jesus taught on this. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So again, pretty clear. If she does divorce, which she shouldn't do, but if she does it, she needs to remain unmarried. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, and this is a lot of people try to get off the hook of what, what the New Testament authors are saying by saying that in the event of these exceptions, it's okay to remarry. But Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, after he's made the exception for abandonment, says this, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So he's saying that she can't remarry until he dies. She can't remarry as long as he's alive. So, in my mind, both Paul and Jesus agree that there's no remarriage. So why don't they? Are they just these two mean old guys who, who don't want people to get married and have fun? I think the reason why they don't allow remarriage is for repentance. Uh, this, this early Christian author known as the Shepherd of Hermas he said a whole lot of whacked out crazy stuff. But he also said some really good stuff. And commenting on, on the passages from Matthew and Mark that we've talked about, he says this. 
Because of the possibility of repentance, the husband ought not to marry. Think about it. If two people get divorced, and one of them marries someone else, the guilty party of that marriage can't come back and reconcile because they're married to somebody else. And so the author of The Shepherd of Hermas is saying, because of repentance, so that that spouse has an opportunity to fully repent and fully reconcile, don't get remarried. I think Paul's saying a similar thing in 1 Corinthians seven sixteen. He says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He says, right after he says, let them go. If they want to go, let them go. He's saying, you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe they're going to come back. Maybe they're going to be saved. They're going to come to faith in Christ by how you treat them. And so not remarrying leaves open a pathway of of repentance and reconciliation to the guilty spouse. All right, let me give a quick summary real quick before we go on to talk about application. I think that the Bible says that this second column here is, is what I think. Um, so I don't think the Bible allows for divorce. I don't think there is such a thing as a biblical divorce except in the case of abandonment. So I don't think adultery is a valid uh, exception, and, and of course I'm disagreeing with the majority here, but I think that even in those cases, even in those cases where there is a biblical divorce, I don't think that remarriage is a biblical option for us. But, let me say this. Even if I'm just dead wrong, even if I'm completely wrong here, even if all these views are wrong, there are four conclusions that I think are 100% undeniable from the Bible on these issues. The first is that the only possible biblical exceptions to its default, divorce is always wrong, stance, are sexual immorality and abandonment. These are the only two potential exceptions that the Bible talks about. So whatever you think, these two things, this thing should be true. The second thing, in the case of sexual immorality, so when that first possible exception happens, the word is vague, like we've talked about but it always refers to a physical act of immorality that's actually happened. It refers to something that actually takes place. So it's not just some vague, you know, he he had a text message relationship with some other woman. That's not what Jesus is making an exception for. The third, in the case of abandonment. So when that one happens, it refers to an actual physical abandonment. One spouse packing up, taking their stuff, and leaving. It doesn't refer to emotional neglect or romantic abandonment or or anything like that. It refers to a physical departure of one member of the marriage. And finally, on the issue of remarriage, if, and I think that's a big if, if the Bible allows for remarriage, it only seems to be an option for the believer following a biblical divorce. So if you think these, these first two things are true, Remarriage is only an option if one of those things has happened to you. If you've done it to someone else, that doesn't give you the right to remarry. So, all that being said, how can we apply this? 
How, how can we apply such a, a big and complicated issue? I think there are two, two ways we can apply it. The first deals with other people. All of us either currently know someone who's been affected by divorce or we know someone who's going to be, somebody who will be. And so I think it's vitally important for all of us to be familiar with what the Bible teaches about these things. Don't, don't just take my view. Don't just take the majority view. Read these texts. Read all of them and, and wrestle with them for yourself. Understand what you think they mean. And don't just separate them into this, this abstract, oh, this is what it might mean. Think about real people you know in, in real-life situations. After I walked through a divorce with a roommate in Houston, he was in a situation that was specifically talked about by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Once that happened, I understood the passage a whole lot more. Most recently, we, we, we've walked through with our family through a situation with my sister and brother-in-law where the, the possible exception for adultery has come into view. And so because of that, because we've walked through that with them, we've had to grapple with these texts in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. So I'd encourage you to do the same. Think about people you know who are in these situations and read these texts. So maybe you know somebody or, or maybe you yourself, I'm, obviously I don't know everyone here tonight. Maybe you're in a situation, or someone's in a situation, where they've carried out a non-biblical divorce. Or maybe they're in a situation where they've done that, and then they've remarried. How do we counsel those people? What, what do we do to talk and minister and, and help those people understand what the Bible says? Well, I think like, like any sin, no matter what it is, we need to understand what the Bible says about it. And then we need to repent and, and work towards reconciliation if we can. So if we know somebody who's been through a divorce, like my sister, I need to call her to repentance. I need to call her to reconcile with her husband. I need to teach her what I think the Bible says and, and push her in the direction it goes. Don't, don't be mean, don't be heartless, but lovingly try to lead them to repentance. For the people who, who have remarried, obviously, once that's happened, full reconciliation with the first spouse is just impossible. It doesn't make sense at that point to divorce the second spouse, to go back to the first spouse. It just, just gets really convoluted and messy. It makes more sense to stay in that second marriage, to acknowledge that according to the Bible, remarriage may have been wrong, to repent and then to live out that second marriage in such a way that seeks to exemplify the high standard that God holds up for marriage in the Bible. Say, I've entered into this wrongly, but I'm here now and I need to do it rightly. The second way we can apply this text deals with us specifically. You see, regardless of what we view or how we view divorce and remarriage, whether, whether we agree or disagree or, or anything else, we have to acknowledge the fact that divorce and remarriage are only realities because of our fallenness. Marriage was created by God and declared good before the fall. But after the fall, it, like everything else, becomes corrupted, becomes damaged. 
So we have to acknowledge that. As we saw last week when we talked about lust and adultery, I explained that the reason why it's such a big deal is because marriage is that one relationship which reflects God's relationship with us as his people. It reflects Christ's love for the church. It reflects the gospel to us. That's why it's so important. So because of this reality, because that's what marriage is, we shouldn't just focus on these these negative aspects of divorce and remarriage. See, a lot of times when when you read the literature about this debate, most of the time different people who hold different views will accuse those who don't hold the view they hold as not having a high view of marriage. They'll say, I think this because I have a high view of marriage. But the, the view we hold on this issue doesn't make our view of marriage high. What makes our view of marriage high is, is how single people uh, pursue a spouse, whether they date or don't date. It's demonstrated in the fact how, of how we as husbands love our wives, love our children, lead, provide for, and protect them. It's demonstrated in how women love their husband and love their children and work with him to lead their children. These are the things that we can do that show that we value marriage highly. These are the things that show that, that we are working towards achieving that standard that Jesus has set for us, the one that God set at the beginning of creation. When we focus on on that standard, instead of all the exceptions that there may or may not be to the standard, when we do that, we're closer to living like he's called us to live. That's what we need to focus on. We need to focus on the standard and not all these other things. I said earlier tonight that the reason why I take the view that I do is because of what Paul says to us in Ephesians 5. The fact that he says marriage demonstrates Christ's love for us. Demonstrates the gospel. And I read that. And I think about my life. I think about the fact that that I was saved at a young age. And then I rebelled. And I rebelled. And I rebelled. Until finally he took drastic measures to get me to come back. And when he got me to come back, He didn't just look at all my sin and all my shame. He didn't recite for me a laundry list of all the things that I had done. He didn't just look at my body which was polluted by immorality. He didn't just hold those things against me. He didn't pull out this this contract that I entered into at salvation and highlight the fine print and show me all the exceptions to his love for me. Jesus doesn't do that. And if you're here tonight and you have a relationship with Christ, you know that those things are true because you are His. You know that nothing that you do is going to change the love that He has for you. If you're here tonight and you don't know that, you don't experience that reality, you haven't experienced that reality, know that out there, somewhere, beyond what you've experienced, there is a love that is more faithful than anything else. We sing a song here which has this line in it that describes Christ's love and it says that his love is more faithful than the morning. I love that line. See, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter 
what we've done. It doesn't matter what our personal life is like. It doesn't matter what our marital history is like. It doesn't matter what our parents' marital history is like. More certain than the fact that the sun is going to go down tonight and rise up tomorrow is the fact that Jesus loves us. His love is more faithful than the morning. And the reason why we know that is because he proved it. His blood shed for us on the cross demonstrates that to us. He paid the penalty we were due for our sins. And right now, right now, he is at the right hand of the Father waiting for everything to be brought to its completion. He's waiting until everything, all these problems we have with our relationships, all these divorces and remarriages and possible exceptions and possible non-exceptions, all these things are finally going to be set right at the end. And Jesus is waiting for it, and we're waiting for it too. So tonight, I encourage you to study these texts, to think about Jesus' love for you. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that it was not good for man to be alone. God, we thank you that you created us in your image, and one aspect of that image is that we get to be married. How we thank you that you didn't just kill us after the fall. And that even though all our relationships, and even though All of creation was corrupted by sin in the garden. You sent your Son into our world to redeem us, to restore us and restore our relationships and restore marriages. And so we ask that you would reach into our hearts, that you would send your Spirit to us, and that you would make your standard of marriage more like our standard of marriage. That you would convict us of where we fall short of what you intended. And that you would convince us of what's true in your word, of the truth of your word. You would help us understand it. We thank you that Jesus is faithful to us no matter what we do. We thank you that his love, that your love, is more faithful than the morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.